Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with your host, Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers Podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics, including health, fitness, and training strategies, to name a few. If you enjoy the show and wish to support, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon or wish to make a one-time donation, please visit the show PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPO pod. Links to both of those can be found in the show notes. Also, consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform and on our video version of the show hosted on YouTube. For updates and notifications, please visit my social media channels at Zach Bitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. If you wish to sponsor the show or have any other questions or feedback, please reach out to me at HPOPodcast at gmail.com. This episode of HPO Podcast is brought to you by Bioptimizers Mass Zymes. As you age, you can lose enzymes. If you do not have enough enzymes, you might only be absorbing 40% of the food you are eating. Most digestive enzymes are cheap and ineffective, and most do not have enough protease for digesting healthy, high-protein diets. That is why I am excited to tell you about the enzyme product called Masszymes. Masszymes is the most complete, most potent digestive enzyme with over 102% more protease than the nearest competitor, and three to 500% more per serving than most popular brands. The Human Performance Outliers podcast was able to arrange the lowest pricing just for our audience. It is the best deal available on this product, and it cannot be found anywhere else on the internet. You can save up to 48% off select bulk packages of Masszymes at www.bioptimizers.com forward slash human. Just do not forget to enter human one zero at the checkout. The best part is if you do not feel how Masszymes transforms your digestion, you can get a no questions asked money back return on your order. So head over to www.bioptimizers.com forward slash human and enter promo code human one zero at the checkout. Links and code can be found in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. All right, folks, uh, welcome back to another episode of the HPO podcast. Uh, I'm really excited to welcome to the show today, uh, Dr. Mike Nelson. Uh, Dr. Nelson, thanks for taking some time to come on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show, Zach. I really appreciate it. Yeah, so uh, I was doing a little homework. Uh, I was obviously familiar of, of your work and some of this stuff for, for a while now, and it, I feel a little guilty that it's taken me this long to, to reach out <laughs> to you and, and bring no you on worries. the show. Uh, and I, I, I was laughing to myself as I was, was listening to one of your podcasts before because you were talking a bit about kind of your metabolic flexibility approach and how that kind of puts you in a position where, at least on the very vocal internet, you kind of yeah. put yourself in a spot where you can get in trouble with, with two very different groups of people. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I kind of joke that I don't get invited to all the the super cool keto low carb events and no one in the high carb area even knows who I am either. So, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I must, I must be a little further to the keto side that I still get invited to those sometimes, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I definitely would consider myself uh, kind of a little more flexible probably than certainly than like a strict ketogenic diet and uh, certainly more so than a high carb or even moderate carbohydrate diet. But sure. 
Um, but yeah, it's one of the reasons why I wanted to chat with you because I know you've done a lot of work and are very interested kind of in that, in that realm of, uh, kind of having that dual fuel substrate type of stuff available to us. But for some of our listeners, maybe who are kind of curious about just like what exactly we're referring to, do you have a kind of a go-to definition that you use for metabolic flexibility? Yeah. How I think of it is there's three components. So on sort of the right hand of the spectrum, how well can you use carbohydrates? On the left end of the spectrum, how well can you use uh, fat? There's kind of byproducts of those, which we can get into ketones and lactate. And then how well can you actually switch back and forth between those two? So it's how well can you use carbs? How well can you use fat? And then how well can you actually switch dynamically back and forth between those two? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think it's really interesting because with a lot of the stuff, with this, the debates, I guess, that happen or the conversations, they sometimes devolve into kind of an all or nothing type of thing where, yes. yeah, <laughs> where you, you feel like, you know, it's like, you got to decide, I need to be super high carb, or I need to be like, you know, next to no carbohydrate, right? Anything else is just, uh, you're being silly. And uh, um, I've always found, uh, I guess, maybe I got into it early enough where I was naive and unaware enough that I didn't really hear a lot of that buzz. So I was more or less just kind of following my workouts and responding to those. And um, I actually think about that because I, I first started playing around with a, a low carb approach for endurance and, and then I do super long endurance events. So like yeah. this, we could, we could go a whole episode on like the difference between like a marathon versus a hundred miler in terms of fuel substance sure. like that. But uh, um, you know, one of the things I found really, really interesting with that was kind of the metabolic flexibility standpoint where the things I, it, I learned really early, I guess, that there's a give and take with all of this, right? So when I, when I first kind of experimented, I went strict keto for a, about a month just to kind of get myself used to that. And I was coming off more or less a moderate to slightly high carbohydrate diet. So uh, for me, it was like, some of the stuff that I noticed were more beneficial outside of training than they were in training. And then it started to kind of carry over into some of the lower end aerobic stuff. But then once I kind of started periodizing my schedule and getting into a lot of, especially like the lactic threshold stuff type stuff, I noticed, okay, there's something not quite optimal with this, you know, 50 grams or less, especially in the context of the volume of training I was doing. So I started bringing back small amounts of carbohydrate until I kind of got myself to a sweet spot where I felt like I was still keeping my carbs low enough to maintain some of the benefits I noticed in myself personally, but also be able to nail those lactic threshold workouts or those uh, sure. functional threshold powers, the new cool way to call it now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, those type of workouts and things like that. So uh, I wanted to talk to you a bit about just specifically like what you've seen in terms of like where is, is there a spot where once you kind of go below X number of grams or certain percentage of carbohydrate, where you start really losing your ability to utilize carbohydrates exogenously. And then like at what point or how high, I guess, maybe would I, someone who's on a zero carb or a strict keto diet need to bring their carbohydrates up to start to kind of regain some of that flexibility where now they're not losing all their, 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 I guess maybe the easy way to say it is throwing away their carbohydrate tool out of the toolbox. Yeah. So on the first part, I tend to find total carbohydrates. If you're in the 
say 50 to like a hundred grams per day. And again, this is variable dependent upon, you know, someone like yourself who's doing just a, a lot of volume versus someone who's not, but this is a ballpark. I kind of call that like the metabolic no man's land where very few people do well there. You know, if you're hanging out at like 80 grams of carbs, you're usually not low enough to be in a ketogenic state. So your levels of beta hydroxybutyrate, if we use that as a marker for ketosis, usually are not really super high. There's some exceptions to that, um, but it's not really enough carbohydrates to help with the, the speed and power and kind of the lactate type uh, higher intensity work. So generally I tell people, I'm like, if you're going to go low and you want to go really low, you probably want to go all the way down and be in a ketogenic state. That's going to be better than just being super low carb, especially if performance is your goal. Um, if you're going to go a little bit higher, then yeah, probably stay a little bit higher. You're probably not really going to be in, in ketosis either, which, you know, we can argue that maybe good, maybe bad again, depends upon your goals in terms of someone who is in a ketogenic state, how, how much carbohydrates do they need to kind of keep in, I don't really have a good answer to be honest. I, I, I do kind of like what you said, more periodized their approach. So I'd rather take someone and say, okay, here's the course of your year. We do maybe some, you know, metabolic cart work or something like that to know, yeah, you kind of suck at using fat as a fuel. So maybe you want to explore doing a ketogenic diet or fasting or some other way to increase the amount of fat use. And then as it gets closer to the race time, we're going to take a period of time. We're going to slowly start adding in more carbohydrates. Um, Cause as your listeners probably know, so I got into this years ago and my first thought was like, Oh yeah. Like if you're someone's running, they just have a ton of fat on board, even lean athletes do. So I'm like, well, maybe they should be using that as a fuel. And then I realized, wow, the speeds, especially if we pick like just a marathon or half marathon, the speeds that they're running, I mean, trying to break a two hour marathon, you're freaking flying, right? So if you're at the elite end of the spectrum, you're actually burning almost hundred percent carbohydrates during the race. If you're not in the elite spectrum, then it gets even more messy uh, related to that. So I thought we looked at some of the research early in the eighties, you saw people playing around with very high fat diets. And what they saw was, Hey, we can dramatically increase the amount of fat that gets used. Obviously, you're familiar with Jeff Fullick's faster study later on since you're a participant in it. Um, and they just like rewrote the textbook on like, what is the max amount of fat you can use? So I was like, oh, great. And then I'm like, oh, metabolic flexibility. Cool. So let's look at the studies then where they do a high fat diet for say six or eight weeks. And then before the race, they just give them a whole bunch of carbohydrates. Because by that point, they kind of figured out, yeah, if we're really trying to create a bunch of freaks for a marathon. Ooh, it's biochemically not possible to power that whole entire event at elite level just based off of fat or even ketones. But they're like, ah, oh, we got it. Metabolic flexibility will upregulate the body's use of fat. And before the race, we'll just give them a piss ton of carbohydrates. This will be great. We've got high amount use of fat. They'll be able to use carbs. Woohoo! We'll create a bunch of freaks. This is awesome. And as you know, that didn't work. They're like, oh, wait a minute. What happened? Like this in theory should work. And they're like, aha, I know what happened. We probably didn't give them enough carbohydrates. We didn't do a muscle biopsy. We don't know how much uh, stored muscle glycogen they have. Maybe we, we got that wrong. So run another study, do muscle biopsies. They see glycogen levels are actually super high. Like, oh, this is going to be great. And no freaks. I'm like, wow, well, wait a minute. Like, well, what's going on? 
And then they realized that, oh, when you would measure them, even though they had glycogen on board, they could still use high amounts of fat because they sandwiched this eight week period of just super high fat training, almost no carbohydrates at all. They lost that carbohydrate metabolism, that glycolytic end of the spectrum, just from sheer not using it at all. And if you look in literature like uh, Trent Stellingworth and some others, uh, you can look at PDH, right? So pyruvate dehydrogenase is probably one of the gatekeepers to glycolysis. And when that changes, you can give someone just a whole bunch of carbohydrates, but they're going to lose out on speed and power, you know, somewhere in the single digit percentage. It's not massive, but if you're an elite athlete and someone said, hey, uh, you're, you're going to lose 6% off your top end, you're like, holy crap, that's insane, right? That's a massive difference. Um, so then your question about, well, how much time do you need to start reintroducing carbohydrates to spin up that machinery again and still hold on to the ability to use fat? Hasn't really been a lot of good studies on that. Um, I know you're having Dr. Dom D'Agostino on again, so uh, ping him on it. I've talked to him a fair amount about this too. And, you know, he's seen athletes where it's literally as short as a couple of days to a couple of weeks. And that's kind of what I've seen too. You know, there's some people who it appears like if they've been doing a ketogenic diet for quite a while, high volumes, pretty high quality, high speed, they can generally handle more carbohydrates and they kind of don't lose as much of that top end. If it's someone who's new and just starts doing a ketogenic diet and you slam them with a whole bunch of carbohydrates, we'll throw out gut issues and a bunch of other stuff that can happen potentially, that enzyme just takes time to come back and eventually will come back. Um, how long that actually takes and how much is, I don't know. I don't have a good answer for you, unfortunately, on that. <laughs> you know, that's, that's fine. It's just, I think, I think that's, that's kind of the, the intrigue with all this right now is there aren't Definitely. clear answers a lot of times. And that's why, why you find up having discussions and everything about it. And a lot of, a lot of anecdotes and things like that, which, which obviously are, are kind of just entry points at best. So it's, it's fun to talk about them though. And I always find it interesting because, uh, I did uh, a bit of an N of one experiment back in end of 2018, as I was building up for a hundred miler. And my, my, my thought was I had kind of just trial and error my way to a bit of a periodized reduced carbohydrate intake strategy based on the way I trained kind of what I wanted available to me on race day and all that stuff. And I, it, it just would work with my workouts and I was getting results on the race course with it. So I started implementing it probably I had been using it probably for a few years at that point in the structure I currently had gotten to. And then I decided, okay, I want to kind of see what's going on from, from just even like a, a blood ketone, like am I, I basically what happened, I just kept getting asked so often, like, are you in ketosis? When are you out of ketosis? When are you in ketosis? And I just didn't have concrete <laughs> answers for these people. I'm like, I mean, this is what I'm eating. You tell me kind of a, it was my response <laughs> at first. And then I actually started, uh, you know, testing my blood ketone levels during one of my peaking phases of training. And I had a couple days, basically the way I structured it is I tested myself like two or three times a day for about a three week period during one of my big blocks of training. And, uh, I, that's when I'll usually start flexing my carbohydrates up to their highest point, um, in my training, which typically will be right around maybe like a 20% of my intake. Uh, and, uh, even during that, I was still typically between about 0.5 and 2.0 millimoles of mm. blood ketones. And I had a couple days in there where I was pushing above 200 grams of carbohydrate. Um, and I think I'm pretty have, high volume of training though. Yeah. I mean, it was yeah. like, 
I was pushing 20 hours a week in some cases. Yeah. So it, it's, <laughs> the, again, context is everything. Yeah. So, but I had remembered when I, when I finally got the numbers on that from my own little experiment, I had remembered when I was talking to Dr. Volick about it years earlier, he said, he's like, well, the thing to think about here is like, if you think of a ketogenic diet, just in general, when we're working with folks who are using it for like whatever reason, therapeutic, and maybe going to the gym a couple times a week, probably working at a desk job or something like that, they're going to almost need to be below 50 grams if they want any chance of yeah. getting their blood ketone levels up. It's like, well, then we take you and we throw in an extra 20 hours of work. You know, there's days where you're going two times, maybe if you do a long run and backload those miles, three times the resting metabolic rate. It's like, at that point, we're probably looking at 150 as like 50 for you. So you may very well be in ketosis, even when you're pushing up to, you know, like low levels, even when you're pushing up to like 200 plus grams of carbohydrate during those phases. And it's just, you can't really ignore the, the variables that you introduce outside of you know, standard day-to-day living. Yeah. And you're burning through it too, right? I mean, even though depending upon what speed you're at, you're probably still burning through a fair amount of it either during the race or even potentially after just your caloric burn is, is so high. You're just, you know, munching through a ton of fuel too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's the other interesting thing. Like if I, if I went and ate a bunch of carbohydrates and didn't do anything, it'd take me days to probably get back into ketosis when I start taking those carbs out. But for where I'm at now, if I went and just decided to eat a bunch of carbohydrates this afternoon, I could go and knock out a 20, 30 mile run tomorrow morning. And I'd probably be back in ketosis by like late morning, early afternoon, the following day. So you do kind of put things on fast forward for better or worse with, uh, with that type of a lifestyle. But, um, it's the interesting thing like that I I'm thinking about now as I'm actually right now getting in, into the peaking phase of a, a 24 hour race. I'm hopefully going to do at the end of the year. And, uh, once, uh, usually my focus events to date have been hundred milers. And if it's a flat, you know, I'm looking at around 12 ish hours versus like a trail, I might get up to like 16, 17 type hour range, 24 hours is getting to the point where I feel like the intensity is starting to get low enough from mm-hmm. a sustainable standpoint that I could entertain a stricter ketogenic diet and almost like not even like that might be the point where I could potentially take that tool out of the toolbox and still be okay. I don't think I'm necessarily going to do it that way, but um, it's intriguing. Do you think like there's a point at which it becomes either neutral or advantage to be going strict keto in some of these like extremely long, like full 24 hour multi-day type endurance events. Yeah. I think there's at some point because this, the speed of even the highest people who finish first is going to be low enough. If you get the event long enough that I think, yeah, you could definitely probably power that being a hundred percent in ketosis. Um, the other part I thought a lot about too is, some of the adventure races where you have to carry all your own food and all your own fuel, your supplies, everything you can't use like stations and stuff like that. Now you're talking about an additional potential efficiency matter because if you can, you know, not really bring a lot of extra food or the food you do is very compact, weighs not a lot like MCTs, fat, stuff like that. Now you're throwing in another external efficiency factor. I think in those cases that definitely could be beneficial too. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's possible. I think the other variable too, that people forget is intensity, terrain, um, hills, uh, is it like you said, running, if you get into, um, 
like cycling is even completely different. Because uh, years ago, I was a volunteer for the uh, Race Across America, the Ram Race, which I had never seen anything like that before, much less participated in. For people listening, they probably know what it is, but I was on a volunteer for a four-person team. So that year, we started in San Diego. We actually finished in Atlantic City. And so someone is obviously riding 24 hours of the day. We had four riders, so we exchanged two people out at a time. So you'd have one person go ride. They'd go for you know, 20 minutes, just hammer it. Then they'd switch with another guy for 20 minutes and they go back and forth for about like four hours. They come off the course for four hours while the other two guys went out and that kind of went back and forth for like seven days in a row. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we're, we're in the middle of Nebraska. And at this time I'm thinking, man, it would be great. Like if, you know, fat's probably like the main fuel because you, you're racing for, you know, like seven days and there's no drafting. And so the thing that I, I kind of forgot about was, uh, so we had a guy racer and he was riding up on this guy from, from Austria and we're behind in a follow vehicle and he's just, he's basically just bored. He's like, I know there's no drafting, but can I just kind of screw with the guy in front of me? I just want to ride up on him and then just back off a little bit just cause I'm bored. I'm like, yeah, sure. Whatever. What, you know, we don't know what we're doing. And he's like, all right. So he rides up on him. You, you see the guy look back and he kind of backs off. He does that a couple of times and he's like, yeah, do you mind if I just pass him? And we're like, yeah. And so we're going by him at the same time. So he drops a hammer, goes by this guy. And you can see the other racer is just pissed. He's like, he doesn't want to get past, you know? So you see him just trying as hard as he can and he just couldn't keep up. And our guy just rides past him and look on the other rider's face was just completely, utterly like demoralized, you know, cause you could tell that he was trying as hard as he could and he just, you know, couldn't keep up. And what was to me, it was fascinating about that was like, Oh, even like day three and a half in like a seven day race, like at some point speed and power actually still matters. You know, if you've got heel climbs, things like that. Um, so I think a lot of the context too, depends upon what you're doing. Are you cycling? Is there hills? How, you know, competitive is it? Is it a relay like that? Is it a single person? Is it you on a flat trail for, you know, two days or, you know, all that stuff then touch, starts to matter too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. When the race tactics kind of dictate what you're going to do, then, then there's like uncontrollables. You don't want to put yourself in a position yeah, definitely. where you don't have a tool that you thought you weren't going to need, but end up needing it because someone else makes a decision for you with something yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah. And that's the downside with ketosis. Like you talk to people and maybe yourself too, is that if you're hundred percent in ketosis, pretty much across the board, and there's good data to show this too, is that just that, that low gear, that top speed and power of, you know, three to 8%, according to the literature, it's just missing. Um, and again, if you're getting a long enough race, that may not matter. Um, but I think it matters more often than, especially what I thought, uh, at face value. And that also gets into the, the context. Are you someone who just wants to finish a marathon because that's your goal? Yeah. You could be hundred percent in ketosis. That's probably going to be beneficial just from a fueling standpoint and a bunch of other things. Again, if you're trying to really, you know, hammer it, then that's a completely different league altogether. All right, folks, this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by a company named Elemental Labs. Elemental Labs is a company that has created an electrolyte powder that you can mix into your drink. The reason Elemental Labs began developing the product Element is because Rob Wolf noticed that his performance seemed to suffer when he was taking part in one of his favorite activities, jujitsu. 
And after a little problem solving, he realized that it was an electrolyte situation, specifically sodium. So he wanted to develop a product that gave him all the benefits of the electrolytes without all the additional sugars and fillers that you would find in traditional sports drinks. Element is packed with 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium, and comes in four flavors of orange salt, citrus salt, raspberry salt, and raw unflavored. So if you would like to up your electrolyte game, head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. That's drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO and place an order. All right, now back to the show. Yeah, and I think that's where sometimes some of the confusion gets because people are looking at their experience with the marathon yes. and they, they wonder, well, why doesn't uh, Kipchoge do that? <laughs> and, yeah. it's like, and it's like, well, you're running a four hour marathon. He's running a two. So it's basically two different events <laughs> at that point. And it's, uh, it's n- nothing against the f- four hour marathon, but it's just, oh, no. like, I mean, if, if uh, Kipchoge had to run as far as he could in four hours, then we're getting closer from a comparison, even though individual to individual is not always ideal, but um, it is uh the, the thing I find interesting too is like when you do see the scenarios of folks having great success with like a really strict ketogenic diet or even sometimes a zero carb diet with, with races like the marathon, a lot of times they also have like a variable where for whatever reason that nutritional strategy worked great for them from a sustainability standpoint and that yep. they, they could stick to it. It worked well. They ate within like a very um, strict range of intake and ended up losing 20, 30 pounds of unneeded weight that they had before. And it's like, then all of a sudden that 3% performance deficit that they were taking on got erased by maybe a greater performance benefit from the reduction in, in power weight ratio. So then my question always for them is like, could you please just try supplementing with a little bit of carbohydrate <laughs> you go even faster yet? And it's yeah. like, I, you know, it, it, I don't, I don't push too much because like some folks, you know, again, they're, they're not always interested in taking an extra five minutes off their marathon PR when they found a way of living that's working well for them. And I don't want to be the one to throw, <laughs> throw a wrench into it either, but uh, yeah. it's, it's interesting thought experiments with that stuff yeah. too. And then, you know, the, a lot of people have gut issues, like who knows what they're feeling with. They may not have practiced it. It, it is amazing to me how many people will just I don't know. I tried a completely different feeling strategy the day of the race. Like, how did it go? Mm-hmm. It went horrible. Really? You're kidding. You know, <laughs> you know, but you know what it's like from working with more elite yeah. athletes. Like most of the time, like a week before any like big event, I just spend more time like trying to talk them out of crazy shit. Mm-hmm. You know, because yeah. it, and I get it. There's this inherent thing where you're like, the stress is coming up. You got the thing. And you, you want to do everything possible to get that last, you know, 0.5% or whatever it is. And I'm like, no, this is like not the time to try anything new. Just do what we did. We've ran the practice. We've done the simulations, you know, just, yeah. You just spent a lot of time talking about of crazy stuff. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's, I think sometimes the part of tension with some of the, the studies we do have that, that highlights some of this stuff too is, you know, you'll, you run an experiment where you have kind of the, you have the high fat or the keto arm, and then you have the high carb or moderate carb arm. And then the, the backlash is always like, well, you changed their diet three weeks before. And I mean, I see the reasoning there. Cause like, I would never change my diet three, three weeks before a, a massive, like a race or something like that either. Um, but in the same thread, it's like, 
you, you, you got to tease it out then too and find out, well, what was that person? I think that's one of the things the faster study probably did really a really good job of is they tried to identify folks who had been doing, I think it was at least, if I remember at two years following. Yeah, it was quite a while. Yeah. It was like you, they wanted you under 10% carbohydrate intake on average um, for a couple of years, if you were going to enter that arm of the, of the study, but you don't always have that option as a researcher. And I think it's like, it's tough because they get all the arrows at the end when they, there's a hundred questions to answer and they have to ultimately pick a couple. <laughs> yeah. And you're always limited too. I mean, it, I mean, I just studied looking at energy drinks and I initially wrote it to do a time trial. And then at the end I changed it to uh, ride time to exhaustion and both have pros and cons. I mean, you know, time trial is probably better, probably a good marker of ergogenics, but I also knew that the population I had was going to be recreational athletes. And I knew that meant some people were going to be, you know, moderately good cyclists and some people just don't cycle much at all, you know, and then if you have a learning effect from that and you've got people that are better at pacing just because they're more experienced, oh crap. So now I got to add maybe a couple of practice trials in it so that there's not an effect of pacing. Oh, boo. And so instead of having them come to the lab three times, now I'm having them come to the lab five times. And now if they drop out of one of the arms of the study, I can't use their data because it's a randomized control, double blind study and the early data on caffeine is all based on ride time to exhaustion from Costigill and all those guys. Um, so it's, yeah, you're always in, you're kind of screwed for starters and you got to pick one or the other, right? So you're always just trying to weigh what are the pros, pros and cons. And with a lot of the ketogenic studies too, is one of the cons, everyone's like, Oh, they just didn't do a ketogenic diet long enough. And it's like, well, maybe. And then it's an interesting question. But the flip point too, like, you know, what do you need? Six months, 12 months, 18 months, you know, mm -hmm. like what is long enough? And then while you're doing that, what are you giving up during that time period? Right. So if you're saying, oh, okay, it's a, you know, 18 months, there's some magical nonlinear thing happens and you just get really good at using ketones, your performance goes way up. That might happen. We don't know. However, but if your intensity is less for those 18 months, you know, that better be one hell of an adaptation at the end also. Um, so again, there's always pros and cons and, you know, the faster study, as far as I'm aware, is probably one of the more longer term studies just because of the study population uh, that they used in it. The downside as you could say is that no one's probably winning races. I think as what 62% of VO2 max, I think for like three, three and a half hours or whatever. Mm -hmm. So very long duration, um, very useful, super interesting. Again, super cool that it was done. However, if you're like, okay, well, this is the be all for highly competitive elite athletes. Eh, probably not because no one's winning races at, you know, like 60, 62% of their VO2 max either. So, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, when I think about like, even for a hundred miles for me, like I'm, I'm pushing up to aerobic threshold. Like yeah. it's, it's, uh, I'm coming down off of it. Like I'll, I'll average probably just under aerobic threshold from a heart rate marker. And it's like, for me, like, I know like that I'm going to be going through some muscle glycogen at that intensity and Definitely. you know, 12 hours of it. And you know, you can, you can deplete pretty, pretty easily within that framework. So, um, cause that was always the big question. Like I would get when I, when I broke the world record for a hundred miles and I just, people would ask, well, what were you, were you taking in? I said, I was almost spot on consistent 40 grams of carbohydrate per hour. I was doing them in about 20 gram dosage every 30 minutes or so. 
And uh, I mean, I had such a controlled environment. It was at the Pettit Center. It was 60 degrees. It's obviously a... Because you did it on a track, I think, didn't you? Yeah, it's like a, I think it was 443 meter track or something like oh. that. It's, it's slightly longer because <laughs> they built it around the speed skating rink and oh. they, they couldn't get it to exactly 400 without encroaching on the speed skating mm. rink, I guess. So um, it's, uh, but yeah, short enough loops for sure. And, but very controlled. So it was kind of a cool, cool way to do it. But um, yeah, but I mean, that was basically what I, what I, what I said was like, you know, at the pacing that I was targeting, you know, I, I knew I was going to be dipping into like, I know my fat oxidation rates are high. Like I think I, my last test was 1.56 grams per minute with my yeah, fat that's, oxidation that's rate. up near max. Yeah. Yeah. So like it's, it's, it's high, but it's not high enough to account for the amount of energy I was going to take out per hour at that intensity and the percentage of that, that would come from muscle glycogen. And I, what I was trying to explain is had I done that approach, what would have likely happened is I probably would have gotten to like maybe nine or 10 hours and I would have depleted my muscle glycogen just far enough where my body's going to start regressing my intent, my pace yep. I'm able to put out. And instead of running, I think I was, I was actually running like six fifteen to six twenty pace at the end of that mm. like I negative split it. But had I been lower on the muscle glycogen at that point, there's no way I would have been running that low. Like I'd yeah. have probably been running seven thirty to eight minute pace at best. So it's like, that's why you, you do those, those small carbohydrate introductions, even if you're, you know, following a relatively low carbohydrate diet in general, when peak performance is the optimal goal uh, for, for a race like that anyhow. So. Yeah. And I would say at that pace, that's actually, I would consider that a lower carb approach, right? Mm -hmm. Which is to people looking on the outside, they're like, oh, bro, but you weren't entirely keto. Yeah. I'm like, but if you look at the rates of carbohydrates that a lot of other, you know, top athletes use at a similar pace, you know, 90 to hundred, I mean, depending upon how much their gut can handle, you know, at least 60 mm -hmm. per hour, yeah. you know, so it's, it's definitely lower than what I would say a lot of other people are doing also. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the position paper referenced target ranges of like 50 to 70 grams per hour for someone on a moderate carbohydrate diet. Yeah. And I mean, I arrived at 40 grams essentially just by like doing some kind of rough math with my max, my fat oxidation rate. But ultimately like what it came down to was 40 grams was kind of the ceiling where I was willing to guarantee that I wouldn't have a stomach issue in yes. good weather, but it was low enough that, uh, um, or it was, it was low enough that I wouldn't get the stomach issue and it was high enough that I knew I was going to be able to defend muscle glycogen. So that's where I kind of, that's how I got to that. And that just came from like trial and error more or less. And then, uh, you know, working on things like that in training and racing and stuff. So uh, I, the, the, the interesting thing is I, I did a treadmill hundred miler um, in May when we had all the COVID stuff uh, cancel all the races. And for that one, I, I, I screwed up massively on just like the hydration side of things because mm. I, I severely underestimated how warm it was going to get on that treadmill compared oh. to the credit center. And I ended up uh, like basically scaling way back on how much I was taking in from a calorie standpoint, um, just to basically try to catch up on hydration. And I ended up averaging, I think, closer to 15, 20 grams per hour for that one. But I ran, you know, what would have been, five, what was I, 12, 1209 for that. So, hmm. I mean, I was a, a solid 40, 50 minutes slower than I was at the Pettit Center. And obviously, you know, you're changing on more variables than just that. But um, I found that kind of interesting is just like kind of a, 
an interesting little anecdote for myself where, you know, 15, 20 is probably too low. 40 seemed to be just right. At least, at least at this point. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, in theory, like if people are listening in my biased opinion, you want fat oxidation as high as possible. You don't necessarily in a perfect world want to compromise carbohydrate oxidation. And then you're kind of limited by hydration and how much your gut can handle. You know, because if you're off on the side of the trail, you're not running. So that's yeah. severely going to impair your time. Um, and some people, you know, Jack and Drorp has done a, a interesting review showing that the carbohydrates in the gut might even be trainable, mm-hmm. right? And you've obviously got things looking at different receptors, which is why they'll use maybe fructose or maltodextrin or, you know, like Vitargo or different kind of engineered carbohydrates to try to get around that too. But you know, I've just seen some people can handle a lot more carbohydrates than, than other people too, you know, and I don't know why that is per se, even with the same type of carb and, you know, maybe it's trainable to some degree. We just don't know how high per se. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting topic just in itself. I know when, when I'm coaching individuals and they ask about like how they should be fueling and stuff like that, that's the first thing we look at is like, if they have race experience, it's like, well, let, let's look at like what you've comfortably been able to consume during the races right now. Cause that's kind of our starting point. And, you know, I'll get folks who are like, they're eating easily 400 calories an hour and they never get stomach issues. Or if they do, it's, yeah. a, it's a rarity. And I have folks where it's like, they take like, you know, a single gel, like 20, 25 grams of yep. carbohydrate. <laughs> it's like game over by the end of the race almost if they try to go above that. So then I usually tell them like, the goal here is to defend muscle glycogen. So how we do that, there's different pathways. So we need to find the pathway that's going to make the most sense with your situation. And if it's a situation where uh, we're going to be fortunate to get them to able to get in more than a couple hundred calories an hour, then we're going to probably leverage that fat oxidation a little more than say the person who can seemingly eat all day with, with no issues. At that point, it's like, well, you've kind of got an open slate as to how you go about this from a digestive issue anyway. Yeah. And it's always hard to even replicate it. Like once you have everything quote unquote dialed in, uh, things like the osmolarity of the fluid, if you're using it mixed in a fluid that can change and you're probably taking in different amounts of fluid and possibly different electrolytes based on the heat environment and how hot it is and what the humidity is. So now your quote unquote perfect plan you had all figured out gets changed because it's 70% humidity and you're running in, you know, 10% humidity or something like that. And I think those are the things that people, forget about because they're like, Oh, well, I found the, the perfect formula. I'll just replicate this till the end of time. And yep. yeah, if you can get all the conditions and everything to line up perfectly every time you may be able to, but you're also entering it in a, a different state than, you know, what you were before your training is going to be different. And yeah, so it's, it makes it a lot more tricky than uh, most people realize. Yeah, yeah. It makes the spectating a lot more fun though. And true. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's an interesting part, but yeah, no, it's, it's funny to think about that stuff and tease it around, but I do want to kind of switch a little bit to the other yeah. end of the spectrum too, and talk about some more of the high intensity stuff. Cause another like kind of aha moment I had uh, inadvertently actually was actually after the faster study, I had, uh, I was basically, you know, I rested enough to make sure I was able to like stay within the parameters of the study and then after I was going to get right back into a training block, but we did those muscle biopsies mm-hmm. and like, I went out to run the next morning. <laughs> it was like someone was taking a nail and a hammer to my closet every step. Yeah. So I ended up like really scaling back for probably two or three days. 
And then I was actually coaching uh, high school track at the time. And I went out to, to the practice on, I think it was like a Saturday morning or something like that. And the kids were doing 400 meter repeats. Mm, and, uh, they always wanted us to jump in there with them if we could. And I was like a little, a little, <laughs> but I did anyway. And I had been, since I hadn't been training, I was, uh, and I was really intrigued after, you know, being at the, at, at Connecticut with the, the study and stuff. So I had kept my carbs really low. I was like probably 50 grams or lower at that point for the past like week or so. And I just jumped in the, the 400 workout with a couple of the guys on the team and was hitting my splits like perfectly, like had that, like I had back in, in college when I was training for more shorter mm. stuff. And the only thing I could think of was like, I may have had a little bit of a, a, or at least my, the way I'm thinking about it now is since I had pulled back on training enough, perhaps I was able to like store up enough muscle glycogen to execute a higher intensity workout once but if I were going to try to stack workouts in the context of higher volume as well, I would have that kind of downward sloping staircase of muscle glycogen eventually get to that point where you go out one morning, it's like you got hit with a ton of bricks. Mm -hmm. You can't run faster than like a real low aerobic pace. Um, Cause essentially that's what would happen if I kept on, like if I kept doing that, my experience has always been like, you know, you, you might have a few good days, but then there's going to be one where you get, you get, you just can't do anything high intensity. And that's kind of that bottoming out where I think a lot of folks either just say, all right, this isn't going to work. And they go back to a high carb approach or they say, okay, there's a little bit of like nuance here. Maybe I just need to bring back some carbohydrate and be a little more flexible. Kind of like what you were saying before, where like you have someone who their fat ox rates are really low. That person might benefit from some like fasted long runs and things like that. Whereas on the opposite end of the spectrum, someone who's like, massively high on the max the fat oxidation rate they benefit from bringing back some carbohydrates to to speed up that muscle glycogen standpoint so i'm always interested with like is this if the sport is intense enough for like what you're trying to do is there more room for like a strict ketogenic diet within that since they're just not going to tap into their muscle glycogen in as big of a way because muscle failure is going to come well before any type of meaningful depletion yeah I don't know, to be honest. I mean, I think that, so like the, it's a super good question. And so the question of even just muscle glycogen is something researchers are still trying to figure out, right? I mean, Bergstrom needle was what, 1963, the first time we actually took muscle biopsies and 50 plus years later, we're still having these conversations about what happens to muscle glycogen, which to me is kind of fascinating. Um, I think there's something also to whether it's, you know, no central governor theory or just something where I get the impression is not as simple as having muscle glycogen. And that's definitely a thing from just a pure fuel standpoint. And that's definitely a thing. It's definitely a big portion. Uh, What's interesting, if you look at biopsy data, you can't really get much below 40-ish percent of muscle glycogen. Like you can't, like your gas tank, like you can't drive it all the way to absolute zero, Mm -hmm. which I find fascinating. So it's like, why, if it's only a fuel and that's all we care about, why can't we just drive it right to zero? Um, There's some stuff with like the glycogen shun theory that maybe everything, the way that the bioenergetics are set up, you're kind of running everything through glycogen and lactate. Maybe you talk to like George Brooks, he would say it's all aerobic and lactate are kind of the main fuel systems. And I found similar things to what you found is 
you can do some fasting. Yeah. Your muscle glycogen will still be okay. You can do some higher intensity workouts for, you know, a day, one, two, maybe three days, but you just can't seem to do that on lower carbohydrates many days in a row. Even in theory, if you're waiting 24 hours between each exercise and you're eating a sufficient amount of calories, you should have relatively high stores of glycogen. It shouldn't be as simple as a timing issue. It's not like you're doing a session at noon and then you're going to go hammer it again at four. Yeah, obviously, in that point, you need a faster carbohydrate in order to refuel those glycogen stores. Um, but I've just noticed that even the third or fourth day that, yeah, it just something just drops off, even when their calories are good, hydration is good, everything else is good. And then you add back carbohydrates and it seems to pop back up again. Mm -hmm. um, I did that with a couple of people on the rower and so we purposely, I didn't tell them this, but <laughs> it was fun <laughs> about clients. Um, we kind of scaled their carbohydrates back and they were not low carbohydrate by any mean. We just kind of cut out about 150 grams of carbohydrates from a couple of them and had them uh, just measure speed and power on the rower. Like, yeah, my sessions weren't so good and repeat it the following week. And then I'm like, okay, so let's take two days. Let's drop, uh, let's increase your carbohydrates quite a bit higher by 150, 200 grams per day. And boom, that Monday, like their wattage was up by 30 to 50 watts on, you know, what they could hold for hundred meters. And the RPE for the rest of their sessions were all down. Uh, there's some other literature to support that too. Um, so you're like, huh, interesting. And I've noticed that even to myself, like I'll have my calories be almost the same. Um, I'll go through periods of having lower carbohydrates and like my speed and power, just that top end just kind of tails off a little bit. And my ability to repeat training many days in a row uh, definitely drops. So I, I think it's glycogen. That's definitely a factor, but I, th I don't know. I think there's something else going on there where your body is just kind of shutting down performance for some reason that I don't understand. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> And why does it have to be so complex, right? We get the smart guys don't even know. <laughs> yeah, and I've asked people about this, and it's one of those things where the phenomenon appears to be replicable. Like, we have data showing that it, it appears to be like a real thing. Um, and if you look at even, you know, mixed modal sports like CrossFit, you know, years ago, they kind of went through the keto craze. And, mm -hmm. like, the amount of emails and stuff I got from them would be, yeah, I did this ketogenic diet it was great for four to five weeks. And then it felt like I got hit by a Mack truck and everything just poof, like went off a cliff, mm -hmm. you know? And I don't know if it's an accumulated stress cause you're kind of using a more inefficient pathway or, or what, but yeah, something seems to be kind of going on there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My thought always was cause like my experience was almost exactly what you would describe. I'd have like three or four days where I'd feel really, really good. And then I would hit a wall. It almost felt like it felt very similar to in the past when I just overreached a little bit in training where it's like, yep. all right, that was one too many workouts, time to take a few easy days and let things reset. And I got to a point where I would I got consistent enough with it where I started recognizing, okay, step one is bring back some carbohydrate. And if I feel great the next day, I know that's what it was. Whereas if I bring back some carbohydrate and then I'm still flat the next day, then maybe I did overreach a little bit. And, uh, it, it worked well enough kind of in terms of just like knowing when to bring back the carbohydrate at the right time. And you can almost preempt it after a while where I just knew, like, if I kept them at a certain level and was doing certain workouts that 
by like say that fourth day, I would want to bump up just a little bit if I, if I had any reason to be training hard again on that fifth day. So, I mean, it's like timing is everything with some of this stuff. It seems uh, almost regardless of whether we know exactly why. <laughs> yeah. And then you have all those studies too, where you're um, looking to purposely deplete muscle glycogen, like kind of some of the, the train low or sleep below uh, studies. Marquette did one that showed three weeks, like pretty massive changes, you know? So you would go out, you would do maybe a hard workout in the morning, fasted, and you would do like a glycogen depletion session. They maybe give you a little bit of protein, you sleep, you get up the next morning and do something similar again. It was a bunch of different protocols. Mm -hmm. um, and you definitely will see acute levels of performance definitely drop. But if we look at what happens to the adaptation and some of the enzymes, all those tend to get upregulated. Uh, the Marquette study, they saw, you know, pretty big changes. Unfortunately, like most science, um, wasn't entirely replicated, you know? So now like what I've seen the studies are like a 50, 50 kind of split, you know? So even though you get maybe better metabolic adaptations that doesn't always translate to pure performance changes either. Um, so, but it's fascinating that that paradoxically a drop in acute performance to prioritize adaptations maybe a way I think once you've hit a certain ceiling to kind of get to possibly that, that next level potentially too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, the, the, one of the first really interesting things that I saw with, with some of that stuff was I was, I started questions like, how are, are we going to be able to replicate some of these studies or like, how's it going to work? Because was it the, was it the Finney cycling study? One of the originals where he had, I think it was originally five and one they brought back because they had like, he had overtrained or something like that. But the mm -hmm. other four, when it, the results, if I'm remembering right, were kind of like a non, or it was, it, was a, it was neutral. But then when you unpacked the individuals, there was like two where it was truly neutral. And there was one where it was a pretty big performance dip and another guy who had like a performance like increase. So it all just kind of averaged out. Yeah, it was pretty split if I remember right. I want to say it was like two, two and two, I think maybe. I'd have to go back and look at the actual numbers, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause if it's, if there's any type of like range there, then like, it's like, you could do a study like Marquette or something similar, and then you do it again and maybe you get a different result just to the different population, or I guess you could maybe control, control tighter than that. But um, yeah, I mean, it's just interesting stuff. I think uh, the, at, at the end of the day, a lot of, the, a lot of the, the sport specific stuff makes it interesting and brings the context that you need to look at, look at some of this stuff. But um with uh, one of the other things I wanted to talk about with uh, just kind of like the flexible dieting stuff in general was uh, um, what do you see kind of on the other end with like the higher or the higher intensity folks where they maybe can they get away with like a super high carbohydrate diet at the expense of their fat oxidation rates and see very little performance deficit just because they're not necessarily doing an activity that they're going to actually be using a lot of fat metabolism during the event itself. Yeah, I definitely think you can. I mean, I've seen some crossover data with, uh, it was actually marathon runners who you look at their diet and it was just old school, like just tons and tons of carbohydrates and their performance was pretty friggin' high. You put them into a VO two max study. Like they didn't even have a crossover point. Like they didn't ever even hit 50% of fat metabolism. Um, so I think you can do it from a performance standpoint. The caveats with that though is it makes me a little nervous because if you're 
missing maybe a station or you're not keeping up with that amount of carbohydrate coming in, you don't have anything else to really rely on. Your, your performance is just going to tank. And anecdotally, you know, some of those people tend to do just amazingly well or just horrible, right? They're just so inconsistent. And usually when you ask them what happened, it's like, oh, I was doing this fuel station. It was horrible. And I was off on the side of the road and I GI upset. And, or if they hit everything right, like they're sailing and they're, you know, they're doing really good. The other part that does make me worry too is just from a pure health standpoint. You know, if you're just constantly cranking glycolysis, the carbohydrate end of the spectrum, ee, I don't know. To me, that's the analogy I tell athletes. It's like, uh, for me, having my 2001 Jetta and just redlining it in the driveway without going anywhere. You know, it's <laughs> like you're, you're using high octane fuel just hanging out at rest, mm-hmm. you know, and can you do okay if you keep enough fuel coming in with performance? Absolutely. Um, but you have no ability to downregulate. Uh, I usually see HRV scores in those people are kind of crazy. Uh, some of them, if they continue, they get super metabolically dysregulated. They'll be having super high levels of lactate just at rest. You know, so their body, I think, if you have super high amounts of stress, is trying to run that carbohydrate into the spectrum to try to, to buffer that. And there's some other good data, human studies, a lot of rat data showing that just how well you can use fat at rest, I think, is a pretty damn good marker of just overall health. That's probably not, I would say, really appreciated either. So again, we're back to, you know, metabolic flexibility. You can downregulate and use fat at rest in lower intensities. I think from a pure performance standpoint, is that going to help you? Maybe, maybe not. Depends on how fast your sport is and how well you can keep carbohydrates coming in. Uh, But it's not going to make you any slower. It's not going to make you any worse. I think potentially it's going to give you a buffer as some stuff goes haywire and it's going to definitely make you a more uh, healthy individual too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It gets, it gets interesting. Like when you, when you start pushing either side of the spectrum all the way like that and do you, do you think there's anything, cause I know like occasionally you'll see, and this is obviously anecdotes, but like you'll get like a professional runner who just hammered the carbohydrates during their career. And then post career, they are met with a lot of different like ill-fated type health issues. And I can see where it could become a problem. Cause like, if you're, if you're, if you're doing something like 80, 90% carbohydrate, and then, which is very extreme to get to mm-hmm. the, from a, from a high carb standpoint. And then you're doing a sport like marathon running, where you're probably eating almost double your rest of meta- metabolic rate on some of those bigger training sessions. My thought is sometimes like if you stop the training or you retire, it may just, it, it could be an overfeeding situation as much as it could be just like having like that high level of carbohydrate intake that's driving some of those problems with the, that population? Or is there something unique to like what you're saying, just some of the, some of the lab work you'd maybe get from kind of keeping your, your car burning the high octane fuel at low intensity efforts for that long, you're going to eventually pay the price for it on the back end. Yeah, I think you will. Um, especially if you stop training. Right. Cause what happened, the thing that scares me the most about those athletes, like, you know, health issues and stuff aside is, man, what happens if you have an injury? Mm. Right. Cause you know, if you take your training volume super high and all of a sudden now you take it super low, but you leave your nutrition the same. Ooh, right. You just pulled out like the, the biggest sink that was saving you, right. Just burning through tons of 
muscle glycogen having a high throughput. You've got muscle contraction, which can pull blood glucose out directly, you know, non-insulin mediated uptake. You don't even need insulin. Uh, but if you take that out of the equation, ooh, yikes, that's not going to be good. And what I find with personality is those people have a hard time downshifting their nutrition at the same time. Um, so that makes me nervous. So again, I look at it as what are you uh, doing more so than what is the fuel per se, right? Because the flip side is, you know, I had a guy who was training for the CrossFit Games. He was, you know, pretty strong dude. Um, he was at 530 grams of carbs a day. And his blood, all his blood levels, like everything was like spot on, like perfect. But he's training an hour and a half to two hours a day, primarily weight training, some aerobic stuff. Not super crazy, you know, but he's training a, a fair amount and he can do just fine on that. I can guarantee that if we took some like Bob whose butt looks like a couch cushion and barely walks to the mailbox and give him 500 grams of carbs a day, he's probably going to be a metabolic train wreck, you know? So unfortunately in kind of the industry, people want to demonize sort of one fuel or the other one. But it, again, it goes back to what is the context of what are you trying to do? You know, if you're burning through a ton of fuel, you can get away with a lot of sort of nutritional sins and be just fine. Um, if you're not, eh, maybe not quite, quite so much then, right? It's a completely different context then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that actually is an interesting point to kind of go back to like the whole, the idea where some of that new stuff where like is how, how trainable is the gut? And it seems like right. there's, there's some research that's showing that it's, it's trainable. Uh, and, but then you get to that point where to be able to actually train the gut for what you're going to do to it on race day you almost have to be an elite athlete or at least a, a training like one in order to actually put yourself through that sort of a, a, a fueling strategy where you're like, you know, fueling on 60 minute easy runs and things like that. Whereas you get the average person who's, you know, training for maybe a marathon or two a year and training relatively low volume compared to the, the top finishers for them to train their gut. It's almost like, they have to make like they're working with a much smaller budget from a nutritional standpoint, mm -hmm. I guess is maybe the way to look at it. So uh, that's where I think that gets kind of interesting where it's probably another thing where it's like, is it doable for like the top end of the field? Yeah. If they have a big enough budget and they're, they're able to stay healthy and all that stuff. But then like you try to extrapolate that down. to like, you know, the middle of the pack or the back of the pack, all of a sudden, like maybe not so much, maybe if you, you know, you're running three or four days a week, you know, you might not have the opportunity to be consuming the sports drinks and the things you're going to try to train your gut with to get you ready for what you're trying to do on race day. Yeah. And exactly. A lot of it, like you said, depends upon, you know, what, if you use running, like, what is your pace? Like how fast are you running? Or if you're on a cycle, like how many Watts are you putting out? Right. And, you know, elite runners, elite cyclists, I mean, they're putting out very fast paced, huge, massive amount of Watts compared to someone who's, you know, just trying to complete the race. You know, it's like comparing the, the, the sports car to the other car. You're kind of pedaling like a Flintstone. You know, you're yeah. both, you're both going to get there, but to think that you're, that you need the same amount of fuel or even possibly the same type of fuel, eh, probably not. You know, if you're just trying to complete a race, you know, it's probably not even worth the hassle of trying to figure out where your gut tolerance is. Mm -hmm. You know, you may be better off doing a, training fat as high as you can get a little bit healthier. Like you said, maybe body comp a little bit better and just focus on keep it as simple as possible. 
right? Try to don't worry about a lot of high-end carbohydrate stuff, eat a fair amount of carbs, you're probably going to be okay. You know, if you're trying to break a two-hour marathon, then yeah, having precise amounts of, you know, super secret carbohydrates every 15 minutes with someone handing them to you or whatever, you know, that Nike did originally probably matters at that point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really interesting with that too. And I I suppose when you get to that point too, where you're trying to do something like break a two hour marathon at that point, like everything has to go perfect anyway. So like, you know, you're just, you're betting on that. So it's like, you're, you're kind of flipping that coin and that's the excitement with it too. So. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, one other thing I wanted to ask you about too, uh, I won't keep you too long on a Friday yeah, no evening for you, but, uh, um, is just a continuous glucose monitors. And one of the reasons I yes. wanted to ask you about it was because I actually got, I'm going to be testing one out starting on Monday. I've been waiting a little bit because I'm going to start like my peaking phase and I really want to see like some of that data as I go into kind of some of that training phase. So on Monday, when I put that continuous glucose monitor on, if you could list a few things that I should be trying to tease out of that, what would you, what would you say? Yeah. Is it like one of the Libre freestyles that goes in the back of the tricep? Yeah. I think it's levels is the company that made. Okay. Yeah. There's a bunch of new companies now. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I've used the, the Libre freestyle in the past. It's pretty art. It's pretty accurate. Um, I compared it to just poking your finger, blood glucose, interstitial versus blood. So it's a little bit different. Um, I took my wife and we put one on her left tricep and then waited five minutes and put one on her right tricep. So the timing was a little bit different and then compared the two graphs just as an N of one and they were relatively close. Um, the caveat is some of the devices are not super accurate at low levels. So the first thing I would look at is what device is it? What is the range and what is the accuracy? Cause this one may be different. I don't know. Um, but like the Libre freestyle ones were designed for diabetics. So yeah, you're super worried if you have a hypoglycemic thing. So you just, you bottom out. Yep. We definitely want to know that. Don't really care if it's super accurate or not. We just want to know that you definitely had a low point, but we want to know more of the high range. Uh, Most people are healthy. They're a little bit more concerned with that lower end where it'll get you in the ballpark, but may not be, you know, hundred percent dead nuts on accuracy. Um, But it's still super useful. What I tell people is, if you have it for about two weeks, I tell them take like the, you can do either week, either way. Take the first week and just do what you normally do. Um, so when we had them, we didn't have the readers, so I didn't know what was going on. So I did one week just normal every day and log everything down so we could go back and compare the, the time comparisons. Uh, the following week then, I just started doing all sorts of screwy experiments because I'm more interested in what are the extremes. So I would get up in the morning and have two Pop-Tarts just to see what would happen, which I call the Pop-Tart test. (laughs) (laughs) Or I would fast for 24 hours and see what would happen. Uh, And you can start throwing in exercise, things of that nature. Uh, You can try foods you think may be suspect uh, in isolation in the morning, which is interesting. Uh, Time of day may also matter. And as you know, if you have stuff later in the day, now you have, you know, mixed meals and stuff that may be digesting before. So it's, you still get a signal. It's just not quite as super clear, but if you can get the data while you're doing it, um, you could look at a mixed meal, say you had rice and pineapple and chicken and you see, Oh my gosh, my blood glucose goes crazy. So then I would wonder, Hmm, I wonder if it was more the rice or the pineapple or the combination, right? So you could take that amount of carbohydrates. Rob Wolf has talked a lot about this too, and then just do that all in rice or all in pineapple, right? 
Uh, we played around with these at my buddy, Dr. Ben House's place in Costa Rica a couple of years ago. We did kind of a pseudo metabolic ward, had a bunch of, you know, lifting bros down there. And it was so funny because like, you'll see just crazy data. Like one guy would have pineapple, woo, blood glucose would go just sky high. He could eat like a quart of ice cream, wouldn't move at all. He could even <laughs> eat like rice cakes and it wouldn't move at all. Right. So something you think that super high glycemic, man, he's going to have a hard time with that. No problem. Um, there's a super interesting study they did a while back in cell that looked at this too, where I think the amount matters, uh, the timing matters and what it is probably matters too. Um, other part too, is that stress makes a big difference. Uh, you'll see resting blood glucose go up if people are more stressed, uh, sleep will, will change stuff too. So you can do some interesting stuff if you want to look at, you know, heart rate variability at the same time to get an idea of stress and how that correlates. But yeah, I think it's super useful. I think it, even if people can get them just for a couple of weeks, I've got another client uh, doing his coming up next week because uh, it does give you very personalized data and it's grabbing data all the time too. So it makes it super easy to do it. I mean, poking your finger every so often just gets to be a pain and you can see like kind of the peaks, does it go super high and then crash? Does it kind of mellow out and then take a while to hit baseline? Um, so it gives you some pretty interesting uh, metrics on it too. Mm-hmm. When you're working with athletes using those, do you ever look for any red flags in that? Or is there, are there red flags you're typically looking for? Yeah. So on the low end, especially during sleep, I'm looking to see if they go hypoglycemic. Um, that can be an issue. You can cross check that with, you know, some sleep data or how often they get up and, you know, it's like, oh, I got to get up and use the bathroom all the time. You see them just go hypoglycemic all the time. So that's kind of a red flag, obviously. Um, on the high end, like how high do they go? It's debatable, but U.S. units, yeah, 120, 140. Start getting up above 140, I get a little, I get kind of nervous and twitchy <laughs> about that. Um, and some people may get even a little bit higher, higher than that too. So those are kind of the cutoffs that I, I look at. And what's also fascinating too is that, <laughs> so the first time we did this, there's a bunch of us that did it all together. A local nurse here, my friend Krista put them in. And so she's like, are you guys okay? You know, kind of sharing all your data when we come back together, we'll do it all as a group meeting. I'm like, yeah, that's cool. So there's about five of us there and we're just going around the table saying, oh, what was your reading on this day? What was your breakfast? And a friend of mine was doing a very kind of hardcore ketogenic approach at the time. She's like, oh my God, I had this like, keto almond something brownie for breakfast and my blood glucose went crazy high and she's like i didn't have hardly any of it and she's like well what'd you have for breakfast i'm like let's see this day i had two pop tarts and a cookie (laughs) and she's like well what was your blood glucose i'm like got up to 122 she's like what this isn't fair how is this possible (laughs) because if you're in a hardcore ketogenic state and you have even a small amount of blood glucose right you have a kind of a, it's a non-pathological insulin resistance at the muscle level, right? The muscle can be temporarily more resistant to insulin because it's trying to bypass it and keep it for the brain. It's not necessarily a pathological. It's not necessarily, quote, a bad issue. It's just saying the brain's like, hey, if I make the muscle a little bit more insulin resistant temporarily, I get all the limited supply of glucose that's going around. And I would rather use glucose even over ketones, which is mm. a little bit debatable. Um, so if you have an influx in that state of a high amount of carbohydrates, you can see some really wacky blood glucose. You can see them spike high and and go low. 
obviously if they go off a ketogenic type diet and they transition, that'll, that'll go away. Most of the time, if you're on a ketogenic diet, it's not really an issue because you're not having a lot of carbohydrates. So it's not something you have to worry about. Um, but that does make me concerned about people I've seen who do like four or five days of like strict keto and then like Saturday night, they're like face down on a birthday cake and they can't figure out why they feel like crap. And they just repeat that cycle ad nauseum mm-hmm. like that. That kind of makes me nervous, right? Because you're, you're trying to become a little bit more insulin resistant. And then you're having massive influxes of carbohydrates that you're probably not necessarily trained. And not like yourself, they're not training two, three, four hours a day either. They maybe make it to the gym twice a week, you know, so they're not burning through a lot of those fuels either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'm excited to, to try it out and see kind of what my typical lifestyle produces on the readings. And then, then like you said, I, I've got enough where I think I can probably do a couple weeks just kind of following my normal protocol to get that baseline and then uh, do, do another round where I start getting a little more creative with some stuff, depending on how, how uh, curious I get in, in the middle of training, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah, it's, so, it's uh, fascinating. And what you see is, man, like just really different stuff from different people, mm-hmm. you, you know, and I, I mean, the glycemic index, I think it's kind of bunked because it was designed more for diabetics in isolation. And what you find is that that doesn't even really hold up a lot of times when you're looking at uh, continuous glucose monitors in people. And, you know, some people, for whatever reason, certain foods, it's, especially when it's replicable, just, just send them sky high and other foods just don't seem to have as much of an impact. Yeah, I, th- I think the, the funniest story I heard with that was Rob Wolf when he and his wife were yeah. doing it. And <laughs> his wife had a cookie or something that didn't yeah. budge the needle and she had a banana and it shot off the roof and it was like the yep. exact opposite for him. So. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's wild. I mean, to me, like, again, my bias is more metabolic flexibility. It's like, hey, mm-hmm. can you go through like a 24-hour fast and that's super low levels of insulin and your blood glucose be like nice and stable? And then can you do like a on the other spectrum, like a pop tart test, like almost 80 grams of like the most highly processed carbohydrate, you know, NASA ceramic grade frosting that doesn't melt in the toaster. <laughs> that'll probably survive a nuclear Holocaust. Not that you want to eat this every day, but can you buffer that high amount of highly processed uh, carbohydrates too? And that kind of gives you your extreme ends of both ends of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, I feel like I've got some, some good ideas and, uh, I'm, I don't want to, I don't want to keep you too long, but if there's anything you want to yeah, talk no about, we certainly can. But otherwise, if you want to share with the listeners where they can find you kind of social media website and that sort of stuff, or if you have anything yeah. interesting coming down the pipeline. Yeah. So one last thing too, uh, to go back to the original discussion we had about PDH and changes in carbohydrate metabolism. Mm-hmm. So what I've done with people in general is if I think they need to upgrade their uh, fatty acid oxidation, but they don't really want to see a drop in quality of training. Maybe we've got more of a limited time, so they can't do a ketogenic approach for a couple months. They're not really looking at a year time frame. Uh, if they do intermittent fasting, so they take a day and they go longer on a fast, what you're doing there is you'll actually start upregulating the use of fats, right? Because your insulin is going to go down, right? So Jeff Olick, the you know, insulin is more your fuel selector switch, which I love that phrase. Low levels of insulin push you to use more fat. Um, your muscle glycogen, unless you're training really hard that day, probably doesn't change much at all. That's mainly depleted just by the amount of muscular work that's done. Liver glycogen will definitely be lower. That definitely gets depleted overnight. 
So on that day, you could do, you know, your lower intensity, moderate type work, trying to, you know, burn through as much fat as you can, keeping your stress level a little low. And then with some athletes, like especially more a uh, mixed modal athlete, like a CrossFit type athlete, we can come back the next day and hit them with like 300 grams of carbohydrates. They can do a strength and power training session and the PDH enzyme doesn't seem to change. And that may be because muscle glycogen isn't changing. Maybe it's because we're now compressed everything to like a super short 24 hour window. I don't know. Um, but that's kind of what I've used as a workaround for people who are like, yeah, I want to get my fat oxidation higher than what it is, but I don't, I've got a limited amount of time and I don't really want to give this trade off of speed and power. I kind of want to train both of them at the same time. Um, so that's what I've done with that, which has been pretty interesting. Yeah, no, that's, that is interesting. I think, uh, I had Alan cousins. I'm not sure if you're yeah, listening to that one. That was oh, cool. did you? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He shared with me after that podcast, he, uh, um, I'm blanking on who the athlete was that they, they did something kind of similar to that where oh, interesting. he, he had essentially the, he, he ate the exact same amount of carbohydrate as he did, as he had been doing. And he was trying to raise his, his fat oxidation rates. And he essentially did it just by timing. Like you said, like he, uh, he did like a fasted, like longish, low intensity, uh, workout where he would have normally had like some, some carbohydrate source before and during. And, mm -hmm. and I, I don't remember all the details. I just remember it was like the, the carbohydrate was fairly consistent from what he had been doing before. It was just timing it in different areas like that. And then all of a sudden his fat oxidation rates improved. Um, so he's kind of trying to get the best of both worlds and seemingly succeeded at it for what he was doing anyway. Yeah. So if athletes need more volume, I'll have them do lower to moderate intensity stuff in the morning fasted, right? So I'm purposely pushing them into a low insulin environment. It's a lower intensity. They don't need carbohydrates necessarily on board. Granted, they would have some muscle glycogen if they needed to. And then later in the day, then they'll have, you know, maybe wait an hour or two, have some carbohydrates, have carbohydrates with meals the rest of the day. Their strength and power stuff is maybe in the afternoon then. So if you have a more advanced athlete or we're trying to get more volume and now we can't really separate it by days, we kind of have to scrunch it down into one day. I've done that with a fair amount of athletes and that, you know, anecdotally, it appears to work pretty good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Mike, thank you so much for, yeah, thank uh, you for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And don't forget if you want to share your website and programs and things like that, yeah. that I'll link it in the show notes as well. Yeah. So the best place is uh, most information I put out goes through the newsletter, which is just uh, MikeTNelson.com. And I've got a free keto ebook. So you can go to MikeTNelson.com and just type in keto ebook and we'll send that to you for free. And that'll go on to the newsletter. Also, you can just hit reply there and I'll send you a free gift for listening to the podcast here. Just mention the podcast. And then uh, I do have a certification that's more looking at nutrition and recovery interventions, primarily for trainers, but can be applied for advanced trainees also, which is the flex diet. So it's just a mashup of metabolic flexibility and flexible dieting. And you can find more information about that at flexdiet.com, F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T.com. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thanks again for, for taking some time out of your Friday afternoon. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate all the, the good questions too. Thank you. Yeah, take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please consider checking out my website at zachbitter.com 
or my social media channels at ZachBitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. You can also support the show by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to send me an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.